0: Hey, uh, you guys, good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here. I'm Jeff, and um, I'm really, really glad that you're, you're here. And as Mike said, if you're, if you're new with us, I know this can kind of be intimidating. and If you haven't already read in your insert in the bulletin why we have a wall there, that explains why we love our wall, uh, but why it's there. But if you're new with us, I'm really glad that you're here. This is a perfect time to be at Mariner's Mission Viejo for a lot of reasons. One is because you'll find that the people that are here are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life, and that this community of people is... Um, A gathering of people who do not have their act 100% together. We are people who have questions. We are people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and how to love other people. And not a single person in this room does that all perfectly. So if you're kind of going, I like that idea of not perfect people trying to follow Jesus, you're in the right place. Um, But within that, part of the other reason why it's so great to be here is because we're, we're starting a series. We're in the second week of a series called An Outsider's Guide to Jesus. And we're looking at the book of Luke. This is a, 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 what's called a gospel. There are four gospels in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, of, in the Bible that describe the life and ministry and then ultimately the death and resurrection of this person, Jesus. And my guess is a lot of us in this room, whether or not you're new or you've been here for a long time or you've been at church your whole life, there are probably some things that you know about Jesus or have heard about Jesus, but you're not totally, the picture is a little foggy. And so Luke actually is a guy who's been commissioned by someone to try to, unfog some of those those stories about Jesus because we hear things but how much of these things that we hear actually I mean is this really that guy is he really all that that who that is and so if you're here last week you heard Doug kind of kick us off get us started a little bit but uh, one of the things we looked at is that this is a this is not a sort of mythical fantasy kind of story it's actually a guy going is what I hear about Jesus actually for real and so Luke's going let's just investigate it and see. And so I've been really excited, I'm really, really excited about this message. We have a, a lot of material to cover, and I'm really excited about all of it. And so, um, gosh, I'm really excited about this. So let's do this, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into today's message. So let's pray together. Father, as we, um, as, we, as we think about and reflect upon this past week, uh, what brought us into this room, why we're here today, whether it was friends that brought us here, whether we are on our own last leg and thought, I have to try something else, Father, I pray that you would would, um, reveal yourself in powerful ways today, that people who least expect you to show up would find that you're already here, and that those of us who have brought with us a story of regret or shame or loneliness or disgrace would find that there is hope, that you have not abandoned us, and that you see us and that you walk with us. Father, for a number of us, we connect with, with John's story in that video, just about the longing for and the desire for gratitude in the midst of suffering and trial. And so, Jesus, wherever we are, whether we're on the other end of gratitude, of feeling full of life and gratitude, or we're feeling like we can't find it, Jesus, we pray that you would meet us here. And so we give to you a moment that you might speak to the, the, the stillness of our own hearts, the quietness, and the depth of our own sort of, um, a depth of wherever we are. So, God, we give to you a moment that you might speak to us, Father. Jesus, we pray that you would be known to us today, that we would see you not as a fairy tale, but as the Son of God who would give to us life and hope in the midst of real pain. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, Well, if you want to take out your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 1, and you want to take a look there. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but primarily we'll be in Luke chapter 1. And um, if you remember last week, just to start us off this way, remember we started our, our, our series really officially last week with Doug and Doug Fields. And here's the, here's the way that it starts. The book of Luke starts like this. I kind of mentioned already, but here's what it says. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, speaking of Jesus, this person of Jesus. Just as they were handed down to us by those who were uh, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's the guy who's sponsoring the research, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now all we're saying is Luke's the guy saying, you've heard some stuff, let's make sure you know without a doubt that it's actually true. Let's let's just do the research, let's get it all out there, because the guy Theophilus is a Roman citizen, and he's going to really orient his life around Jesus there's a lot at stake for him. This, the book of Luke's written probably around 60 AD, which is right when Nero's kind of going crazy and persecuting Christians and all kinds of stuff. And it's like, if he says, I'm going to follow Jesus, it means it might mean his whole life. And so he wants to know for sure, is this for real? And yet there's this weird thing that happens. The life and story of Jesus, as Luke records it, doesn't include the word Jesus until the 31st verse. So there's this story of this guy Jesus that they've been they've been heard they've heard about they understand him, but really they're a couple years removed, and you don't even have the name Jesus until verse thirty one of this, 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 account this book this letter. Which means there's another thing going on here. There's something that Luke's attempting to do, in other words, that there's a story before the story to set everything in. This uh, this past week, uh, was it? Friday, I took my three kids to Disneyland. My aunt is like, he's worked there for like 35 years. She gets us in every so often, and it's like the greatest thing in the world. And we, we, you know, walking around. And I'm realizing about Disney, which a lot of you already know, in Disneyland, what they do better than most every other amusement park is that they, at least on their big rides, attractions if you're a Disney person, but the biggest, on their biggest rides, the line itself that you wait in has a story so that you're immersed in the story of the ride. Uh, the best, probably, examples I can think of are probably uh, Star Tours and, um, uh, what's the other one? Oh, the Raiders, the Indiana Jones one, where I remember at the Indiana Jones ride, if you haven't been on this before, you start out kind of next to the Jungle Cruise, where there's this kind of jungle-y theme on the outside, and then they hand you, a, I remember when this first opened, they, hit, they handed you a little decoder card, and on all of the, the stone sort of temple area around, you could kind of decipher the little words. It gave you a little there's sort of mythical kind of crazy language. You kind of read it and decipher it to pass the time. And it got you into the world of the story. And, you know, as you spell it and look at the letters and drink your Ovaltine or whatever. All that stuff that it kind of camp that you spelled. Some of you caught the reference. But you're, you're while you're walking through this thing and it sets you up over and over again. For what you're about to experience, because if you miss it, it's just a ride. It's just a little, you ride around in a Jeep, and there's a, you know, the, the big ball comes up. You know, whatever, if you remember from Raiders of the But, you know, it's like you're kind of, this is designed to set you up so that you're fully immersed in the story. Now, this is what Luke does. He tells you another story before he tells you the story of Jesus to set it all up. Now, before I tell you that story, I have to tell you this story. What we have to understand, remember, the Bible is ...is for us, but it's not to us. In other words, we weren't the original audience. People in the 21st century, you know, driving hybrid cars... ...and reading the scripture on a digital device. None of that stuff had... ...no one had that in mind. There's a different world into which the Bible comes than our own. Now, the Bible, like I said, is for us, but it is not to us. And one of the critical things you have to understand... ...is that there's a different way in which the the world is experienced with each other. Um, In order to understand the ancient Near East... ...I have this really terrible analogy... but you have to just deal with a little bit, okay... Um, two weeks ago, I got to go to um, a college football game. I got to go to the UCLA football game against Cal, which we lost yesterday against Stanford. And that's, that's painful, but I, that's why we're here today, to deal with our pain. Um, but anyway... Um, but I went to the UCLA game at the Rose Bowl. And one of the things you find always at, at college football, you see this in the pros too, but you definitely see it at college games, is that you'll see inevitably, you'll see a group of, a group of, of, group of students, typically. You usually don't see people much older than that, but sometimes you do, and it's just sad. But here's what you see. They've they painted their, they're like, you know what it's like, it's night, it's 7.30 game, but I'm taking my shirt off and I'm painting my body with a big R school logo and my face and everything. And it's like, woo! Now, here's what happens is, immediately when you do that, you associate yourself, even at a great distance, with the team, whoever, whatever your team is. So there's guys, you know, we, we're playing Calum. Luckily, they're not that good this year. We happen to be an okay team this year, and we, start, we beat them. But there's these guys wearing face, or like face paint and body paint with their team on there, and it's great when you win, because everybody knows you, even from a distance, you're associated with winning. Everybody can tell, that's you, that's that guy, oh, that, that's, that's that team. That's hilarious, those people, you know, painted themselves. Man, that's awesome. Now... That is a wonderful plan when you win. Because you go out walking to the parking lot, everybody's high-fiving you, and it's like, yeah, I know, I'm crazy. Look at this, this is awesome. It's kind of sweating now and dripping off a little bit. But it's like, yeah, this is awesome. Now, but if you lose, you have to wear that everywhere you go and everybody knows. Now, in the ancient Near East, you have kind of something similar without the body paint it's a society built on honor and shame there are still a lot of the eastern world like middle eastern eastern world the non-western world has this still where people all of your associations are worn on your sleeve essentially everybody knows from your name and your dialect whether or not you are a winner or a loser they can tell uh, whatever you have done in your life is known by everybody it is a public experience of shame or of honor Let's give you a sense of what this looks like. I want to show you just some of the pictures of some guys who have lost football games wearing these things. is really funny. So here's a couple pictures of people who have lost a football game. <laughs> like, thing one and thing two didn't do too well that day, I guess. Here are a couple others. Look at this. <laughs> look, I'm not okay. Just really quick, take a look at all these pig guys' faces right here in this shot. You have uh, one dude who clearly has something between his fingers. He's rolling around, right there. One guy yawning, like, well, I don't know what else we got. The other guy blowing his nose, the other guy wiping tears. I mean, it is like disgrace, right? Okay, next. Oh, mommy, why is the clown sad? Okay, good, next one. <laughs> I had nothing to say about that guy. Okay, good, next one. Okay, that was a Nebraska corn husker suffering the shame of a corn head, whatever that is, right? And is there any more, is there one more? I think that's the last one. Is that the last one? Or the last one? guys at a Dolphins game? Yeah, a little too old for that, guys. Probably. Probably. Okay, you get the picture, right? If you win, it's hilarious. And it's wonderful. But if you lose, everybody knows it. That's kind of the world into which we're gonna, we're gonna, the story develops. And if we don't understand that, we'll miss a little bit of it. So remember, there's a story before the story. It's built on this culture of honor and shame. And so I want to show you then what this looks like. Um, where honor and shame is everything. Luke 1, verse 5. Here we go. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now here's what Luke's doing. Remember, first century. Luke is credentializing these people. He's saying these people are people of high respect and honor. They come from the right lineage. Uh, Zechariah is this priest. He has this particular role in the community and in the temple. He's an important guy. He married someone who comes from a priestly lineage, the line of Aaron. So he's got like the double we're awesome kind of honor thing. That means he has ascribed honor. She has ascribed honor. It was given to her by the fact that she comes from a good lineage, a good bloodline of people. And he's a priest and comes from a good lineage, a good bloodline of people. That's ascribed honor. It's given to him. He just has it. But there also is something else that Luke says. They have an acquired honor, meaning... They've earned something too. These people are righteous in the sight of God and they observe his commands and they do it blamelessly. That means publicly they're known as people who do what's right and they come from the right, like from this standpoint so far. The paint on their body, to stay with the analogy, is really good and they're with the winning team except for something else. Verse 7. There's a problem. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, for us, we go, well, that's, that's a bummer, but it, in people, a lot of us in this room have wanted to have children. I mean, there's, like, there's heartache that goes with that, but we don't catch the full idea of why this is such a big deal. Here's why this matters. In the first century, in the ancient Near East, you cannot be a righteous person and also not be able to have kids. You cannot come from the right bloodline and be this, right, this person who does what's right and yet somehow not be able to have kids. Barrenness is a sign of a curse upon your life in the first century. What's being set up here is that there are these people who have done all of what's right. They come, Everything about them points to righteousness, and yet there is a public shame that they suffer. And all of a sudden, the paint on their body switches from winning team to losing team. Because publicly, shame is experienced publicly as it is, as, as is honor. And there are these people now... ...who are known for their righteousness... ...and yet something must be wrong with them... ...everybody would say about them... ...because God must have cursed them... ...because they have no kids. And they begin to wonder... ...the shame they wrestle with most is when will we be able to be broken from this public shame where everybody looks at us and says, "You seem it seems like everything's going real well for you guys, but there's some kind of curse upon you and they just can't figure it out. And they do what's right. They're on the right team, so to speak, and yet they can't quite figure out how to break themselves from this kind of disgrace, this shame, for a very long time because they're very old. Now, why would Luke highlight a story of public shame at the beginning of his story about Jesus? Why would Luke take the time to illustrate to people who would have understood all of the implications, the, the people who are reading this, the, his author, his, his reader, Theophilus, would have understood as well as any, everybody else would have understood people who are deemed to be righteous who don't have kids are, de- are therefore not righteous, it's what everybody would have known in the first century. Why would Luke start his story about Jesus with that story of shame and disgrace? Maybe it's because the story of Jesus is the story of God entering into precisely that kind of world where people experience shame and disgrace and dishonor and regret. Maybe the story that, God, that Luke intends to tell about Jesus is that Jesus himself, God, in fleshing himself in this person of Jesus, comes into a world not where everybody has gotten themselves all prepared and looks all perfect. Or rather, this is a world in which God enters, where people's lives aren't all perfect. Verse eight. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Here's what this means: There's like about roughly about eight thousand total priests. There's a lot of priests. And they all have different responsibilities in the temple. There's about 800 alone in Zechariah's little division. And what they would do is, the, the, there's kind of like, this is the big moment right here. What's, what's happening is, a priest gets chosen, a couple of them get chosen by lot, which is sort of like like dice or a lottery ticket, but a little, like a bingo, but a little bit more Jesus-y, if you know what I mean. And uh, so they, they get chosen by lot to go into the temple and go into the holy place. So there's the most holy place, the holy of holies, right? And right outside of that is the holy place. And only certain guys get to go in here. And what they do is they go and burn incense and the smoke fills the area and whatever. And then what the expectation is is that they would come out and pronounce a blessing over all the people. They would say the traditional Aaronic blessing, which you can read in number six, it's just, may the Lord bless you and keep you, all that, Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's that that blessing. So anyway, uh, this is what's expected of those people. Now this is a huge honor. And it's presumed that the person who does get to go in there isn't someone who kind of like happened upon it? There's not really a belief in that kind of idea. It's like God has selected this person for this holy task. And people who would be given this task would be like, This is my moment. This is the, this is the great, this is the, top. for a priest, this is awesome. I remember when I was a little kid, and this was years and years and years ago, I was at, the, it was at Universal Studios on the tour, on the little tram tour, or whatever, walking tour, whatever it was. And I remember they, they, um, they got, they took volunteers to do some things. And they were like, Does anybody, want to be Buck Rogers in this, like, space adventure thing. And I was like, it's not quite Star Wars, but I, yeah, I'm your guy. You know, like, totally. Like, and so I remember, like, I got to get into this spaceship, and they and I remember they, they, there was, like, a big screen in front of me. It looked like outer space. And then there's, like, all these buttons and stuff like that, and I'm pushing all the buttons, and, you know, I'm sitting with this other girl who I didn't know because didn't really matter is relevant? because I was a space captain and you're sitting right there I could have been anybody but I was like I don't remember who sh- I just remember there was someone else there with me but I was like I am flying in outer space and I remember this is my moment I, I mean when I was in fifth grade I raised money to send myself to space camp I mean I was like this is the moment of my life I've arrived everything else from my life is downhill this is the peak moment of my life this is what that is for this guy oh my gosh my my name, I get to go in there and do this thing and I get to the incense and the burning and the holy place and then I get to pronounce the blessing. This is awesome. That's what he's thinking, okay? He is incredibly excited about this. It's probably a once in a lifetime, maybe a twice in a lifetime thing based on the math. I mean, it just doesn't happen all that often. Now, Luke is establishing something. This narrative is brilliant. Luke's establishing something here. That God is at work in and behind and underneath sort of the normal channels because you have these two people who are publicly understood to be very righteous, quote-unquote, blameless as well, in in public opinion, who come from the right families, but yet who can't, but the righteousness is kind of suspect. And yet this guy, Zechariah, gets picked by God to go into the temple and do whatever he's got to do. And somehow or another, there's a story happening here that God's working beyond ...and behind the normal channels that people would expect God to work at this time. Verse 11. So remember now, Zechariah is in there, in the holy place. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Some translations have seized with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now... There's this, there's Zechariah doing this holy work of God in the temple. I don't, I, now this is a, this, this is my own, there's no commentary here about this. But my guess is as Zechariah goes in there, the last thing he expected to see in the temple is like an angel showing up. Like you're in the, you're doing God's holy work in the temple and stuff. The one place, if you had to predict where an angel would show up, it'd be there. But the last thing he probably expected was an angel. So an angel shows up, and angels say what all angels say throughout the Bible, because evidently they are terrifying creatures, they all say, Don't, do not be afraid, fear not, whatever, something along those lines. Which means, if you ever have heard anybody tell you, you know, I had a flat tire one time, and someone pulled over, I think it was an angel. Well, were you scared out of your mind? Did they fix your tire when you gripped with fear? If the answer is no, then it was just a handsome person, okay? That's all that it was, all right? Uh, there was a joke there I was going to say about me helping people, but it just didn't work. Okay, anyway, but, um, <laughs> but there's, this, there's this, he's gripped with fear. Oh, my gosh, there's an angel in here, and the angel says, hey, Zechariah, good news. Your prayer has been heard. Now, there's no record of the prayer that he says. It's not like he went in there and is praying, you know, as he's putting the, whatever, however you make the incense smoke. It's not like he's praying as he's doing that. We don't have any record of that. We have a record of some... All we know is that there is an ongoing prayer that the disgrace that is upon his family would be lifted. It's the prayer he says when he wakes up. It's the prayer Elizabeth says as she wonders about whether or not her righteousness really matters. It's the prayer that he says when he's angry at God. It's a prayer he breathes. It's a prayer he doesn't even need words for anymore because he's prayed for it for so long. God, take away my disgrace. Give me a son. Give me a child. He doesn't even need to say the prayer because the angel just says, your prayer has been heard. The prayer of the thing that you've always wanted. It's going to come. Elizabeth's going to have a kid. And you're going to name him John. See... What we have is this, this sense of, of, of Zechariah going, I need my own disgrace to be washed away. I need something outside of myself to deal with this because I've done everything I know how to do and it's not working. And the angel says, your prayer has been heard. God has heard that prayer and you're going to name this kid that you're going to have John, which is kind of a weird name for a kid because there's no there's, you know kid, boys are named particularly after their father's lineage and there's no John in his history. The angel says, you're going to name your son John. John means Yahweh is gracious. You're going to name your son God is gracious. The angel tells Zechariah how awesome his son will be. He tells him, you're going to have this great kid. But before I tell you that story, I have to tell you this story. In the ancient Near East, in the the Jewish custom, there's there's a longing for this person called the Messiah to come. Uh, this is a person who, would, God's an all, Messiah simply means anointed one. In, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. So just in case you're wondering, like, Jesus' last name isn't Christ. You know, like, you know, Joseph and Mary Christ and their son, Jesus Christ. Uh, you with me? Okay. Uh, but there, the Jesus uh, is, is identified as this Christ, this Messiah person. Now, before the Messiah comes, the people, by the way, are wondering, for hundreds of years, they're wondering, when in the world... Is God going to rescue us? We've been in captivity on and off for our whole history. And when is God going to rescue us from captivity? When will he send this anointed person to come and rescue us? And because there's lots of theories about how. Well, it's going to be, it's going to be like a military leader. Oh No, 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 it's going to be a priest. No, it'll be like a prophet. That's what the Messiah will be like. No, no, no. And maybe he'll come, maybe there'll be two messiahs. These are all kind of theories around the first century. Well, maybe it'll be one messiah who comes twice. I mean, these are all all these theories people have. But the big question is, well, we don't really care how. We just want to know when. And what they all know is that before the Messiah comes, the anointed one, God's anointed person, there's going to be someone else who kind of gets everything ready. Here's what it says in in Malachi uh, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire, talking about the Messiah, will come, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, now skip to to chapter 4, verse 5. There it is. See, I will send the prophet Elijah. Let me stop right there. Elijah is a guy, a prophet, who is known for you know, having these kind of speaking to people about coming back to God. He's reputed to have miracles, like, attributed to him. There's something about this guy, Elijah, that people go, this is God's guy, okay? And he was also kind of miraculously carried up in a chariot of fire, like, so everyone's like, we don't know what happened to Elijah. But we know, God says, there's going to, Elijah's going to, I will send the prophet Elijah, when he comes, you're going to know that God's on his way, you with me? I will send the prophet Elijah before you that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Verse six. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that's the way the happy note that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible ends. There's gonna be this time, you are all waiting and there's gonna be someone who comes kind of like Elijah or like Elijah who's gonna prepare the way, who's gonna turn parents back to their kids, kids back to their parents And this will be the way in which you'll know that God is about to show up and rescue his people. Now, let me tell you what the angel says about John. Luke 1, 14 and 17. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now remember, when it says many will rejoice, this is because while shame and honor are both, one, they have a private dimension, they are both publicly held, meaning... Everyone will recognize, not only for him, but to you, how great your son is. Not only will you have a son, he'll be awesome, and everybody will acknowledge it, and you will feel that. Many will acknowledge, uh, many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. It's just the way of saying his, his holiness. He will will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord, their God. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord. There's the preparation statement. In the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is the news that Zechariah gets. Not only is your shame over, you get like the most awesome son ever, and everybody will recognize him. It's not only that it's like, wow, you know, you're going to have a kid. It's like when you're having discussions at the playground with all the other moms in their double Bob stroller. We had a double Bob stroller, some of you know what that is, moms. The, the big jogger stroller with the double, whatever that is. And you know, there's, there's, the, there, there's all that conversation going and even as you get older and there's the conversation about what does your kid do? My son's a doctor. That's great. My son's a lawyer. That's awesome. My son comes in the spirit and power of Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. Anyways, <laughs> good talking to you guys. I mean, it's like this is awesome. There is no, it's like this is like the greatest. And Elijah, I mean, this, this, this is like he's going to set up this person, the, the Messiah is going to come. And it's going to be unbelievable work. And Zechariah. Filled with joy and gladness, looks over at the angel and says in verse 18, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, my wife is well along in years. (laughs) Do you not remember, Zechariah? You were just gripped with fear. The angel, the ensigns, the whatever it was that scared you, and now you just have, Well, we're old. Maybe you didn't realize, Angel, we're old. I don't know how it works up in heaven or whatever, but old people, doesn't, it doesn't work, okay? So we're old. I mean, that's what he says. Now, <laughs> I love the, this is the best. The angel has the great, this, this story just gets funnier and funnier. The angel has the best answer in the world. <laughs> then the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and tell you about this good news. Like, remember, it's good news. And now, <laughs> you will be silent, And not be able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, (laughs) here's what he says. I'm Gabriel, the angel, so you can shut up (laughs) for nine months. (laughs) It's the best. Now, okay, speaking, okay, if you've ever been in a relationship, anyone here, you're dating now, have dated in the past, you're engaged, married, whatever it is. Would you, would you not agree with me at least a little bit, I'm speaking just to the women in the audience, just for a moment, that your relationship would be vastly improved if your significant other, was a, someone just slapped their, I saw just a little, like this, next time, was a slightly better listener. Just slightly. I mean, I'm not, you know they might already be good, but if they were a little bit better, just show of hands, it would just be, you're nervous, raise your hand, I know. I know, I know, I get it. Just raise a finger so I can just see. We're on the same page. Now, <laughs> I see husbands grabbing, grabbing hands and like pushing them down. Now, the prerequisite for being an awesome listener is not speaking. Now, women who have had children, your husband is—I'm just guessing, not that I would know from experience—but uh, your husband's probably the least helpful to you with his words. When you're pregnant, am I right? Just do stuff and stop talking to me. Handle stuff, right? What a gift this is to Elizabeth. (laughs) You're going to have a son. And guess what? Your husband's about to become the best listener in the world (laughs) for nine months. Whatever it is got to say, he just... That's it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's all he can do. You're, you can, you can, there's, there is a, you know, that pregnancy glow that some women have that's like, I'm pregnant, it's the greatest thing in the world. And, like, you now have a glow because your husband is just so great at listening now, too. That's what's being said here. Now, here's what's happening. So, again, Gabriel's like, good news, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the greatest ever. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. But we're old. Okay, I'm Gabriel. Shut up for nine months. This is what's happening, okay? Now, remember, he's in the holy place. And there are all these worshipers gathered out in the courtyard waiting for him to come out and pronounce a blessing. They're kind of waiting around like, we've been standing here waiting for that blessing. What happened to our guy? Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. <laughs> like, what do we do? He's not coming out. What, do we, just, do we, stay, we keep standing here? Or do, we, do we leave? What do we do? Verse 22. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. <laughs> Which means they're okay with whatever he did. Like, whatever he showed them, they are like, nah, that makes sense. He must have seen an angel. <laughs> like, because he has to come out and go, I don't know what an angel is. This is like a chicken. I don't know what you do. Like, <laughs> he lay in the dirt and make snow angels or, you know, like dirt angels, dust angels. And then he's like, I mean, what does he say? And then my wife and we're, you know, what does he say? He just has the like, and they're kind of like, well, I guess that's, I guess he saw an angel. We're out of here. I mean, I don't, what do they do? But they have this experience where they, they're waiting for him to do this, to, to have this blessing. Now, here's what's also awesome. There's another layer here, which is this. That in this time and place, in this world, public speaking, eloquence, was a distinctly male privilege. And it was an honor for a man to be able to speak. Which means if he couldn't speak, shame. So there he comes out there. Hey, everybody, I have the great honor of my life to be this priest. I meet an angel in there. I can tell nobody about it except with whatever signs I got. And I cannot pronounce the blessing. And yet God is still at work in the midst of all of this shame. God is doing something in the midst of shame. Funny, though, it might be that God's doing something in the midst of shame and disgrace that is so incredibly powerful. And we're setting up this story for Jesus in the midst of shame and public disgrace and dishonor. 23 and 24. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Most people agree this is probably because she, you know, how could she tell people she was pregnant? She, she was so old. So she waited until she had the little five-month bump to be able to just be like, no more disgrace. I mean, whatever. She just had, she waited a little bit. Now, verse 25. Listen to what she says. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. God has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace. I had thought for my whole life I was going to live forever in this kind of disgrace, that I would never have the kid I wanted to have. I would never have the kind of honor I'm supposed to have. I, I come from the right family, and I married the right guy, and we do the right things, and I've just been waiting for so long, and now God has come to deliver me from my disgrace. An end to my disgrace. You know, there's this kind of this interesting question I, as I was looking back over this passage, which is why doesn't Zechariah believe the angel? I mean, we mocked him a little bit, obviously, but there's this, why doesn't he believe him? I think as we talk about our own public or private or secret or hidden disgrace or shame in our own lives, most of us have this experience. That we couldn't even believe it if someone told us that disgrace or that shame is over. We wouldn't wouldn't want to let ourselves go there. There's even some of us who believe that shame is our new normal. Like we're just supposed to live in in an ongoing experience of shame and disgrace. But this in some way, the most hideous of all lies, the most hideous of all those lies is that God himself has desired that I live in this kind of constant shame and pain. He wants me to have that. I made some bad choices, some bad choices were made for me, and somehow or another, this is how I'm destined to live. So many of us live as though that's the reality in which God has chosen for us to live in. Maybe we believe that we're not worthy of being lifted out of disgrace and shame. Maybe we believe that somehow or another, this is God's intention that we experience it over and over again. The backdrop of the story of God coming to rescue his people, to dwell among them, is this story of shame. That God would intentionally begin to to show you that there is a lifting up out of shame and disgrace. That that is his intention. That the whole of his mission on earth isn't simply to make sure everybody feels terrible about themselves. No, no, no. It's that God, God himself would rescue people from their own shame. And that's the story into which the beginning of Luke starts. Luke's going to tell the story of Jesus, but it's about people who are being rescued from shame, not people who are destined to live in it forever. Let me ask you, what is your own story, your own encounter with public and private shame? Maybe it's an old story from your childhood. Maybe it's one you presently live out. Maybe it's something that you brought on. You made a decision a long time ago and you've never been able to live it down. Maybe you made a decision and somebody else isn't allowing you to live it down forever. And maybe it's something that you had no control over that just came upon you but you suffer some degree of public or private shame and disgrace. I'll tell you, I got to re-experience. Man, it's emotional. Um. In my own life, um, I thought I'd be able to get through this. I told it to our team on Thursday, and I'm like, "I got this." I don't. Um, reliving some of my own, my own shame from my own childhood. Um, my uh, my oldest my oldest son is a oh, man. He's quirky. He's a brilliant musician, artist, and. He's a really—he's got really high emotional intelligence. He's incredibly brilliant, and uh, he's a misunderstood kid. So I watch him. We're talking to him the other night, and he just goes—he's crying—and he goes, "Dad, nobody—I don't know—I don't—nobody really understands me." And I, I, you know, I don't know who to be around at school. I go, "What do you mean, buddy?" And he goes, "Well, just no one wants to—no one wants to be around me." What are you talking about? He goes, "Well." I just walk around the playground at lunch by myself, you know, waiting for some, I don't know who to talk to. I don't, you know, I just kind of walk around. And I'm like, I'm, I'm watching him as he's crying. And I remember I was in fourth grade. And I remember I was, you know, I was working at the computer, which by that time, you know, there was like a computer for the entire school, you know. And I'm working, like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I remember my, uh, one of the guys I used to ride my bike with to school, there's like 12 guys that all rode in this big bike I was gonna say gang, but we're all fourth graders. But you get what I'm saying. We rode our bikes to school, and I remember working on the computer, and a guy dropped a note in my lap, and it said, "You're out of the group, the guys." And I'm like, you know, now I tell that story like it's the beginning of like you know an after school special on ABC, you know. But I look at him like I thought I was past it, and I'm watching my own son getting that same kind of treatment. And I'm like, oh my gosh, when will this end? You know, I'm living that statement that people say all the time that you're only as happy as your saddest kid. And I'm just crestfallen for my son. I'm praying for an end of his shame. I'm praying that it would stop. What is your public, private shame that you hold on to? That you have believed, you were destined to hold, that you were cursed to hold, that it's supposed to never leave you. But that God is saying, I want to enter into this, and I want to see the end of that shame. It was my intention that you would not walk in it and hold on to it for the rest of your life. It's my intention that God would lift it, God would say, it's my intention that you would be lifted out of it. You would understand it. It's not your disgrace or your shame that defines you. It's me, your father. Here's what I want you to do. You um, had a plain little card. We we couldn't figure out what kind of clever graphic to put on it, so it's just a plain card. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to do something very courageous today. And, you know, um, I think that you are up to it. I told our staff, I think, this is a high-functioning group. They can handle this. Here's what I want you to do. You got a pen when you came in. I want you to write in as simple terms as you can. Maybe it's a word. It's two words. You don't have to sign it. You don't have, you don't have to initial it. You don't have to, it's just, this is between you and Jesus. But I want you to identify what is that public or private shame that you carry? It's a secret that got exposed about you. It's a secret that you hold, whatever it might be. And I want you to write it down right now. So take it out. Write down your own thing. Mine would be my fourth grade son. He'd be lifted out of his own shame because I feel his pain. Because I felt it before. But what is it that you would would write down? That you would go, God, I need to be lifted out of this. If it's not your own, like your own personally, what is it that you go, someone else is someone else's. Now, I'm not going to make you stand up and shout it out. I'm not going to make you pass it to someone else next to you. None of that stuff. This is between you and Jesus. But as we go into a time of response, here's what we're going to do. You're going to take this. You fold it up as tight as you want. If you, you want to fold it up a hundred times, you can. And there are going to be people up here. Some of our prayer team, some of our associate elders. And all that, all that they're going to do is This is kind of like reverse communion in a lot of ways. You're going to come up. I just want you to drop it at their feet. And they will pronounce this blessing over you. May God show you his favor and lift you from this shame. May God show you his favor and lift you from this shame. You drop it and walk back. That's it. But everybody will do it. And in so doing, we all acknowledge that we are people who are on a journey, who have not figured out everything, who God is still at work in. You guys with me? Understand? Let's pray together. And then a band will come up and we'll get a chance to respond together. And then I'll close us in a few moments. Jesus, we know the experience of private and public shame. And we long to see an end of it. We wonder when that thing that we've been holding on to so long we've let define us would be lifted from us. Jesus, we pray that you would enter into this place of our deepest fear, of our most solitary loneliness. And that you would lift us from the shame. That your favor would be upon us. Father, as we have thought about and wrestled with and wondered about, our own shame, Father, we leave it here knowing that as we get a clearer picture of you over the next couple of weeks about who you are and what you want to do with our shame, Father, that we believe on faith that you want to lift it from us and you want to restore us to fullness and to life. And so, Father, today as we, we bring a sacred offering, it's something we've held on to for a long time that we release to you that we might be lifted from it and we might find new life, and new wholeness because of your work, Father. So Jesus, as you um, encounter us today, Father, in the in the in the depths of some of our our, our weakness, um, Father, would you be tender with us? And would you recognize the courage of people who would leave their own shame here, and would they hear the blessing of your favor and the lifting out of the shame? And so, Father, it's in your name, powerful name, that we pray. Your dignifying shame-lifting, disgrace-removing name that we pray. Amen.